This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Faith, orthodoxy and secularism all converge in Ashley Goldberg's novel Abomination. So, Ashley, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David. Now, the backdrop to your novel is actually a fictionalised account of a contemporary event, the abuse of children by a principal at a religious Jewish school. And that has a very powerful influence over the narrative. Yeah, it's actually in this instance, you know, you know, there are a couple of particularly high profile cases with similar events, but in devising this narrative, for me, it was really an amalgamation of quite a few high profile cases. I um, lived in Canberra for a bit and, and worked for the federal government. And, um, you know, one thing that was quite apparent at that time was the 2013 Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. So while there are certainly high profile cases that are going on at the moment that can be related to the fictional antagonist in Abomination, it's really an amalgamation of, um, of all of those events. But it's there hanging in the background rather than an examination necessarily of that event. But we see the influence of that event in the lives of your two central characters, Ezra and Jonathan, but it's some 20 years later. So the uncertainty, lack of clarity has actually influenced their lives. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think um, I didn't want to focus on the event itself. I didn't want to write a story that's effectively about abuse. I, what I was interested in is, um, I suppose, the, the paths that people take in their lives, what, what it is to be uh, effectively placed on a certain path. And, and then, um, you know, in this instance, the event works as a springboard to launch into the two separate narratives, which are effectively juxtaposed to one another. You have Ezra's and, and Yonatan's. It echoes in the background because the reader is left in an element of uncertainty. It's an event that their parents never spoke about, but it was sort of whitewashed. And so we're left wondering what influence this has actually had on their lives. But as you say, two characters, Jonathan and Ezra. Jonathan is orthodox. Ezra has become more secular because they were separated after this event and have gone their own different ways. But both of those individuals are looking for balance in their life. Jonathan as an Orthodox Jew, Ezra as a more liberal secular individual, they find a form of stability in the roles they have, but an equal level of uncertainty. Yeah, with Ezra's narrative, for me, I thought this is an opportunity to explore um, the everyday. I think it's a, it, it is you know a more relatable narrative for readers in that it is he lives a, a relatively secular life, but he has uh, trials and tribulations that I think anyone uh, could have. You know, he's in, in his early thirties, but at perhaps that time in life, whether it's um, his romantic relationships, his job. Uh, and his his perception of self, it's effectively a crisis of identity. But what's interesting there with with Ezra, um, there's also that underlying uh, that he he was brought up um, with a certain religious background, and and subsequently, uh, you know, there's an argument there is there a is a there a moral groundwork that is has been laid down for him 
having been brought up with Judaism, um, having gone to a religious school in his youth, and subsequently, you know, to what extent is his crisis, his crisis of identity related to that? And it goes back to where that crisis stems from. Can it be attributed to that moment at the school? Jonathan and Ez were, were friends, but then they lost contact with each other. How much of our lives as 30-year-olds can be attributed to something that happened in the schoolyard? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think almost any, any, anyone can pinpoint a point in their lives and go, well, that was a real turning point for me. Would I be the person I am today if not for that event and that turning point? And what's interesting is, um, you know, for some of us, it might be that that was an event we had control over, whether that's a decision to go to one university or another, not to go to university, to move states, whatever it might be. But for so many people, you know, what happens where that event is out of your control, like for Ezra in this instance, and then the impact that has on, on who we ultimately become. You explore the nature of life in an orthodox community with Jonathan, and this is very revealing. Can you outline what the 613 commandments are in the short time we have? 613 commandments. Yeah, there, there are um, actually 613 commandments or mitzvot, uh, which are good deeds that, according to Jewish law, um, are meant to be abided by. Of course, not all of them uh, are applicable in modern society. Um, some of that's explored in the book. And yeah, there's quite a number. I couldn't name all of them. I don't, I don't know all of them, but there are a few that are, that are a little tricky. A lot of us have difficulty just with 10. Imagine what life would be like with 613. It becomes an imposition. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, really explored in, in the context of the, the ultra-Orthodox narrative in, in Yonatan's narrative, where there is effectively a, a bit of a contradiction when it comes to the, the application of some over others. You also level an accusation at one stage in the novel. There's a sermon given at the synagogue. And so the Torah tells us to erase the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So the Amaleks were a people that basically tried to eliminate some Jewish people. But Jonathan sees this discourse as a form of advocacy of genocide. It's an interesting idea to explore. That's one of the... Um one of the 613, I believe. And, and there's actually another one or two that also, similarly, it's open to interpretation. I mean, so much of Jewish law is about interpretation, but similarly also seem to um, instruct the Jewish people to, to commit genocide. That particular, um, that sermon and the, the parsha that that's quoting is, is a particularly controversial one because of that instruction. And, and obviously because of what the Jewish people are known to have been through in, in ancient and, and modern history. But in some ways, just as controversial is the bind Ezra finds himself in within the secular world. He works for a government department drafting bills for, for the Victorian Office of Parliamentary Council. Now, this is a very supportive workplace, but he's looking at a bill which he finds abhorrent, short-sighted policy of a democratically elected government. 
he's actually being asked to do something which goes against the grain. Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting when you look at, I suppose, the, the structure of our society and how things are effectively set up uh, that you are, to a large degree, a participant. I mean, a Western democratic society, while we do have a certain amount of freedoms in terms of our election, you know, um, it's still, at the end of the day, a, a two-party system. And you kind of feel like you can have an influence on the outcome of policy. And at the end of the day, it does feel a bit like you are effectively a participant. But it does paint both religious institutions and communities and secular, even government institutions as being somewhat hypocritical. Yeah, you know, in terms of the, the fictional context that's provided, absolutely. Both the context of the Yehel community, which is a fictional ultra-Orthodox sect, and the fictional government in which uh, Ezra works for, you have the idea of effectively, you know, what is the idea of a Western democratic system? What do we stand for? We stand for individual rights and freedoms and justice. You know, and similarly, when you look at the context of, of Judaism, so much of Judaism and Jewish law is about justice, morality, righteousness, taking care of the innocent, good deeds, even really the idea of good is, is such a so prominent in Judaism. And in the novel, you do see a real kind of contradiction in actions. But what is good? Because in order to do good to one, you might have to do harm to another. It's that juggling and balancing that's taking place within religious communities, political communities, government institutions. It's always there. But both Ezra and Jonathan also have problematic relationships. Ezra is with Tegan, who's a shiksa, someone who is not Jewish, and Jonathan is with Rivka. And there are pressures in both relationships. And I found Rivka's actually most intriguing, but in some ways she's got to break a commandment to fulfill the role she sees as being important in her community. Yeah, Yehel is a, a fictional ultra-Orthodox sect, but it does adopt a lot of practices and traditions that are um, still widely used with regard to um, the treatment of women within, within Judaism. And there are certain obligations that um, could definitely be interpreted as a bit archaic. And there's this real toss-up, I think, um, not just for, for Rivka, but definitely for, for Yonatan and other uh, individuals you know, in, in the Yehel community. But for Rivka, in terms of balancing those obligations with what she really wants out of life. Well, it shows the pressure that we are all under, not just Rivka, but anybody within a community sees the need to fulfil a particular role. And... Um, may not be complete without it. So there's, there's this contradiction within the Jewish community, within the government institution, where on the one hand, we see ourselves as trying to do good, but there is an equivalency in terms of the harm that can be done as well. And what really brings it home is a term you use when it comes to individuals. And I'd like you to explain it, Yetzahara. Yeah, Yetzirah is is effectively mankind's inclination towards evil. You know, the little devil on the shoulder that's telling you to do bad or any breach of Jewish law. But that 
notion of man's inclination towards evil lies within each individual, but it can also lie within uh, a secular institution, a government department for that matter. It can lie within uh, an institution, a religious institution that sees itself as doing good. It seems there is no way we can break away from that conflict of interest and, and that dichotomy. Yeah, I think that brings up a really interesting discussion. Do we have control over the development of our, our power structures? You know, in terms of the wider community, like I said, we have a Western democratic government. But similarly, in a religious institution, there's a certain hierarchy in place and traditions and just a way of doing things over over years and years. But but wouldn't the question be, I suppose, aren't there things we can do, policies, decision-making that we can put in place um, to prevent uh, the yetzer hurrah of the institutions or, or the government? But the irony is that the orthodox community that you have is both supportive in terms of providing a cultural framework that people find fulfilling. At the same time, we see Jonathan going through an identity crisis and questioning uh, his role, which he can be both accepted and embraced, but also ostracised if he doesn't follow those commands. Absolutely. And it's, it's obviously um, a question which I imagine several individuals, if they've found themselves in that position, have asked of themselves, when Judaism has such a strong moral framework, and you're brought up to be righteous and to protect the innocent, and, and be overall good, to shy away from Yetzer Hara, but then you see other individuals in your community whose actions that you know seem to go against that. I mean, that contradiction would, would wear on anybody. Well, that conundrum is there for Ezra and Jonathan to sort out for themselves, for even Rivka and Tegan to sort out. It's for those religious institutions that go beyond uh, just the Jewish community, and it's even within governments to actually question if they are doing harm or good and how they can resolve those conundrums and dilemmas. The novel is Abomination. The author is Ashley Goldberg, and it is a Penguin Random House release. So, Ashley, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me, David. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. Have you ever heard a story and parts of it stick with you? And over time, that story becomes your own. That is what Scott Pierce has achieved in The Rider on the Bridge. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was the woman who told about the daredevil bravery of The Rider on the Bridge. What was the rider doing? Well, here is this rider, this young man who has decided at the urging of his friends to ride his bicycle along the edge of a rail bridge about 15 feet up from the road, daring, I guess, or for me, he's hovering between life and death. There he is performing an act, uh, perhaps ill-considered, but an act that a young person often makes uh, that entertains their friends but then from a perspective, from a distance, there's a certain amount of calamity 
that's going to um, you know that's going to happen. Yeah, I think for me that's what he's doing. He's just hovering there between life and death. The writer is a kid who really never contemplated what would happen if he fell. This is also the story of another young boy who lives in danger. What's the danger for the boy living with the woman? You know, I guess there's a number of dangers for him. He is living with a woman who is who seems to be battling her own mental demons, and this makes her a relatively uh, unstable person in his life and someone that doesn't provide for him the type of care that he needs. And this leads to him becoming isolated from his community and then eventually deciding to leave the woman and he set out on his own. Well, primary school was difficult. He had become accomplished at stealing lunchboxes. But by year nine, he was completely disinterested in school. So he not only left school, but he left home. Where did he go to? Well, he takes the train and he heads into the city and there he meets a girl and then she takes him along to a squat in St Kilda. The squat's called the manor. Now, it sounds like a fine share house, but give us a bit of a description of the manor. I guess for me, you know, that manor it is a derelict building in which, you know, it has clearly seen better days, somewhat of an art deco building, two stories, and this group lives in the second story in rooms that are, that are water damaged and mold damaged and the whole building in a state of dilapidation that they've decorated with, with scarves and candles and furniture from the hard rubbish collection. But it is, it's a building that is, that is much, that is fraught, that is in danger of collapse, like, just like the characters. There's mice and rat traps on the landings and the carpet which held the rainwater in a quote. The carpet gurgled under the weight of each step. It's here that this boy finds a home. He felt prior to that like a mistreated dog wanting a home. And Julia not only gives him this home, but she also gives him a name and a quote. It wasn't derogatory or a slur her words were a cradle and took the name for affection. So what did Julia and her friends call him? They call him Kitten. Yes. Which is a name, I guess, that, you know, it is, that's an endearing name because I, I guess to these, to these other people who have had more of an experience of life in a squad, that's what he looks like, this sort of lost little kitten. Who else was in this squad? Well, we meet. Jake, who is uh, someone who comes and goes at his own leisure. We meet Brad, who is sort of the erstwhile leader who is making a living uh, out of dealing. And then we meet Joffa and Fergus. Joffa is Julia's brother and Fergus is a friend. And we meet Sophie, who is a friend of Julia's. Sophie, a quote glazed brown eyes that promised mischief. Now, we should also say that uh, Joffre and Fergus, not only do they act as couriers for Brad's drug deals, but they also act as spotters for Julia yes. and Sophia in their sex work. Yes. Kitten sees his good fortune in being welcomed into this group 
and he has got some money, but he spends it all in a very early adventure at Luna Park. Doing what's he doing? Well, there he is. You know, he's finally found a group of people who who have taken him in, who are kind to him, and he's so desperate to win their approval. But on this venture to Luna Park, he spends huge amounts of money on rides and games to demonstrate to them that he has some value and they should keep him around. They ended up with 30 furry animals from the shooting gallery. Now, if that's not a waste of money, and this is where, you know, money, they were living on bread, but choices are made. So there's a plan for this group. What's the plan? The plan is that they're going to save money and they're going to move to Byron Bay because they have this idealistic view of Byron Bay as a place where they will go and they'll live on the beach and they'll grow lots of weed and everything will be perfect. Oh, well, you'll have to read the book to find out whether that comes to fruition. But this is Brad. Now, Brad, as you say, is kind of the leader of the group. And this is a quote from The Rider on the Bridge by Scott Pearce. Brad talking. This isn't a story about beautiful losers, their hearts of gold and dazzles in need of a prince. He was trying to stare me down, but I didn't move. Really? Exposition, action, climax and lesson learned. I felt the intense burn of humiliation, of not understanding. He saw it. He must have. This isn't tragic, right? It's sad. There's a difference. People make choices. That's it. Her life was shit. Your life was shit. My life was shit. Big deal. Make a choice. Do you think he gets to make a choice? Yeah, he does. He does make a choice. And I I think part of it is realising that you've made a choice even when you don't think you've made a choice. Where there are drugs, there are police, but also the threat of other drug dealers. And this is where the book came to a climatic finish. You give us a glimpse of families that this group belongs to. Jake takes them to his family holiday house in Sorrento. Brad tells him to scrub up to meet his parents. Do either of these outings help Kitten understand how a family works? No, because they're both as dysfunctional as, as his family life. And so it very much gives him the sense that he is on his own. And the only refuge that he has is with the people that he is with. This book, The Rider on the Bridge, was a story about a boy who had no family. You've written another book, Scott Pierce, Phased Yellow by the Winter. This is about a family incredibly tight in a community. But why does the wife want to leave? I guess for that book, I was looking at the decline of rural communities and looking at the ways in which, for me, that book is very much about the ways in which that process of colonisation has led to this a damaging of the land, which then leads to another a damaging of families. And so what we're seeing is a decline of a rural community in which there is no future for them. And so there's this sense from that lead, that main character in that book, Vic, he wants to die hard. He wants to do that manly thing and stay on the farm until the bitter end. But his wife is very much saying, that's ridiculous. We've got children, we've got responsibilities, we've got a way to get out. 
with getting out. Well, not only is the local school closing, but the local footy team is also threatening closure. And this brings about a love-hate relationship with Vic and his father, John. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I was really interested in, in that decline of football clubs and the decline of community and the very much the ways in which, I mean, football is a very, it's a really troubling aspect of, uh, of Australian culture. It's so popular. And it's, it's so entertaining and there's so much drama. But underneath that, there's often a lot of difficult topics and subjects that are, that are not discussed or that come to the surface and then are, um, are dealt with poorly. And some of that has to do with violence. Some of that has to do with exclusion and misogyny and sexism and homophobia. And that these things are often not necessarily discussed in ways that are productive. And I wanted to use that book to, to look at the ways in which these topics, they don't just work at a, at, a, at a national level, but they work at a personal level. And they work at a personal level for these particular characters that, they've got, that have got to negotiate them, but they've got to negotiate them without that sort of, without a safety net. Scott Pierce has written about two very different families. In The Rider on the Bridge, a boy finds his in a share house of drug addicts. In Phased Yellow by the Winter, a loving, supportive family has to make a decision about leaving its community. The best place to purchase Faded Yellow by the Winter is online. It was released through Reading Sideways Press. And the best place to purchase The Rider on the Bridge well, it's available in bookshops now and it's also available online. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.